Hi, Latinos in Clinical Research Community. Today, I'm here with Ashley, Dan, and Chris, and we're going to be talking with Ash Rishi, who is the founder of Couch Health and the Campaign for Change Demand Diversity. Thanks, Ash, for being here today with us. Um, so let's get started. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Yeah, thank you very much. Well, firstly, thank you for inviting me. Um, I'm big fans of what the work you guys are doing. So yeah, keep keep doing what you're doing. Um, so for me, I am from a neuroscience background. Um, and I got into neuroscience because I'm from an Indian background. Um, and my parents always wanted me to be a doctor, uh, like, like every Indian uh, parent. Um, but I did not have the aptitude, the intelligence or, or, or the patience, to be honest, to be a doctor. So um, I wanted to do business. That's what I've always wanted to do. Um, but then at college age, I was about 19, uh, no, actually 18. Uh, my father was diagnosed with prostate cancer. Now, the, this sort of set me on, on a path that has really taken me here to have this conversation with you guys, because um, he, he didn't understand his own symptomology. English was his second language in the UK. Uh, same for my mother. I was an only child um, and a young, you know, a young, young kid, basically. So we just didn't know what to do. And we were getting sent on this through this healthcare system with information being thrown at us that we could not understand. We didn't get. Um, and it was a it was a traumatic experience for for me as a, as a young man. Obviously, my mother and my father was when he was finally diagnosed. Um, was given six months to live. He fought for six years, um, but unfortunately he passed. But for me, um, as I went through my career, I was like, why was he never given the opportunity to join a clinical trial? Um, prostate cancer, young man, uh, I mean, early 50s, surely he was ripe for a study. And actually, I later on found out that his, his consultant was actually a lead a PI for a global study so at the same time that he was under my dad was under his care so this all set me down this path uh, through my career uh, I tried to work in a research lab I was useless and um, so I left that within three months and fell into like a healthcare advertising sort of space and and even in that space you know uh, where key opinion leaders you know they are our uh, gods as it were you know in, in, in drug development and drug promotion and I didn't see any diversity there. You know, they were all um, affluent, you know, uh, white males, if I could be just honest with you. Um, and so it's something that's stayed with me my whole career. And then finally, I got to a stage of my career where it's like, I can do my own thing, finally. Um, so I set up Couch um, with the mission to just try and make communications, research, and whatever we do, just inclusive. Um, and you know, it's only been in the last couple of years since COVID-19, George Floyd, for me, that our business has just exploded um, because the world has become more aware of the challenges that we all face within research. Um, so, yeah, that, I mean, that is a very quick whistle-stop tour of, of me and who I am. Um, but, yeah, that's I, I, over to you. <laughs> wow, this is an amazing story. Amazing. Wow. Well, thank you for, for all the work you're doing. And, um, you know, it's stories like that, that really just kind of, at least for me, they, they really move me because it's, um, it's very unfortunate, you know, um, 
that not only were y'all unable to or being placed in that possible scenario, but the PI was very much involved. That right there, it feels is, you know, ridiculous and a perfect example as to, you know, how not ideal <laughs> the system yeah. is, you know. Absolutely. And, and I think for me, if, if I can, really, my mission is if I can just stop one family going through what, I, what we went through, if I can just do even one a day, one a month, whatever it be, I, I sleep better because I think that is what we're fundamentally here for, whether it's, you know, from a site perspective, patient perspective, you know, whatever. Um, we're here to just improve, improve everyone's lives. Um, so that's my driving factor. So when my team are getting stressed out about timelines and deadlines for, you know, the website or the flyer, I'm like, just, you know, get on with it. First world problems, you, you know, you, you could save someone's life. So just put it in perspective. Um, yeah, doesn't go down well all the time, but yes. <laughs> um, so I guess this for me, um, and I'm sure uh, Judy and Chris have some, and Dan have some questions, but do you feel that, you know, the possibility of uh, that scenario was possibly because there was maybe like a, you know, uh, an issue with translation and things like that? Because I know that for Latinos in clinical research, we, we do touch a lot. Um, you know, we focus on Latinos, more specifically because there's a language barrier, right? But we are open to all ethnicities because of this issue, right? It's a, I think it's a very broader issue. And, and um, I know that even to this day, we, we talk about issues of translation and they're not being, even when there is translative documentation, it's not accurate or it's not helpful and all those kinds of things. Do you feel that that was part of that scenario? I think that's, that is part of it um, in the fact that we weren't able to understand and the information we were given was just, you know, like it was not uh, patient friendly at all. But I think for me, it's, I think it's the bias more than the information because I think, so my father had, you know, immigrant, um, he had one job, but he was working you know, like 60, 70 hours a week, you know, really just to put food on the table. Same with my mother. Um, you know, they were very ambitious people. So they moved into a, a nicer area. But so they took a leap, which uh, their mortgage was, was exceptional. And then the recession happened at the same time. So loads of things happened, but they were working really hard. And I just wonder, you know, that stigma around I don't know, immigrants having more than one job sometimes, you know, not wanting to get involved in clinical trials, whether that just stops the PI from actually ever just having that discussion. Um, I think there's that. Um, and if the discussion did happen, I don't think my dad would have understood. I'll be honest with you. I don't think I would have understood. Um, and certainly my mother wouldn't have understood. Yeah. We're, I was just talking to Judy about this before you guys got on. Uh, Cause we're both in, we're actually pretty close as far as like distance from each other. Um, our sites, we're in an underserved area, basically near the Mexican border. And, you know, I told Judy, like, Hey, I have a brand new site here in Yuma. And so far we've only screened like a handful of patients and none of them have been Hispanic, um, or underserved for that matter. Like, one of my patients is a pharmacist. The other one's an attorney. It's not what I expected, you know, coming out here. And Jaime, who's our NP, Judy interviewed him. 
he's a nurse practitioner. He told me like, even for this new study we're about to get, um, it actually stuck out to me. Uh, the monitor said, Hey, I noticed you don't have a Spanish ICF. Do you need one? And I said, yeah, of course, you know, we're like right here underserved. Like it's very important to have Spanish. And then Jaime who's Mexican, like as you can get, he basically said, yeah, but it's not that important because they've, they've been extremely hesitant. So like we can start without it. So it's like, you know, if this guy's saying it's going to be tough, and what you're saying is like immigrants tend to be skeptical about these kind of things, which I definitely can see. I'm a child of immigrants as well from Romania. Like, why do you think that is? What is it about being an immigrant that just gives you like a higher dose of uh, skepticism compared to non-immigrants? I would I put it down to history. Um, so, for example, the, in the Indian population, uh, obviously the British Empire, a lot of colonial, colonialism. Um, so there is distrust to the to that institution anyway. From a, I'm talking from an Indian British perspective. Um, there are cases of you know false sterilization and uh, sterilization in Puerto Rico. Um, there's they, you know there's research that's been done that is just unethical. We can always talk about Tuskegee. Uh, we can talk about so many other examples. Um, but I think in different cultures, there are different stories. Um, so for example, I was, I was talking to, I, I, I use my mum, she's a great example, COVID-19, she's still getting WhatsApps from home in India, you know, and they're saying, just put turmeric in your, in your milk and drink that every night and you won't get COVID-19. So there's also a lot of, you know, misinformation out there and they'll trust um, home rather than healthcare. If, you know, and I think that's why we need to really improve representation in in the research. So I think what you're doing is great, Dan. You know, having that sort of all, all of you actually having those sites, you know, with representation in it, it will have an impact in the long run. But we've got a lot of mistrust to to, to tackle. Yeah, and I agree with Ash and Dan. Um, there's a it's mistrust with the medical system, the community that you're in, but we keep saying that. So what are we going to do to change it? That's the next thing that we need to do. And that's what we're trying to do. Like at my site, it's like, okay, we keep going in circles with that. Okay, we know that. So like, what are we doing to change? Well, we make sure we have the consents. We make sure we go in the community and we educate these, everybody who doesn't understand clinical trials. If it means speaking to every single person, that's what we're going to have to do. And that's how we're going to make this change. That's just part of it. But, you know, that's the conversations we got to have. You're, you're, you're spot on. I mean, I think, so I, I, we work exclusively pretty much with sponsor-led studies. So, you know, the sponsors get us on board. And yeah, the discussions we're having is, it's just no point doing, you know, the Facebook adverts. I mean, like, let's do more than that. We need to go to the community. We need to talk to them and let's choose the right kinds of sites. Let's stop looking at the big academic institutions. Let's also look at more... Uh, community-based uh, sites and so on um, so a lot of that is and it all comes down to that feasibility that they do which is just a survey to a site and no site is going to go no we can't recruit diverse participants you know it's a business so really um, I think the model of how they set up research is, is broken if I'd be honest with you and it needs it needs revamping um, I wish I had the answer because then you know I'd be a very rich man. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I would definitely say that 
you know, this, like what you were just talking about, you know, the approach like internally and how they're, they're doing their processing. I feel like this is a multi-tier level issue. You know, mm-hmm. I know that right now what the, a lot of the movement is, oh, let's, um, let's hire diverse people, which is uh, very important because that also kind of helps with the grassroots aspect, right, through family and friends and things like that. But there's so, so much more than that, right? And I feel um, that it, the communication, if, if there's really, you know, want and movement from the sponsor, the CRO to actually make these types of change, they have to be hitting at different levels at all at all points, right? And it's it's not just hiring, you know, individuals that are in research because, you know, when they're hiring individuals for research, a lot of the times they are hiring people with education, right? Are you also addressing those that are in rural areas that do not have this education, right? That don't have the experience. Are you dealing with the doctors, the physicians that want to know about research? And I mean, there's just so many routes that they need to take for for there to be actual change and movement and in fast enough pace, right? Because I think what COVID taught us was that um, there's so many breaks in the system and so many things that are not working. And so, you know, we're going through, I guess you could say the corporate route of fixing this issue, but we all know that that takes too long, right? Mm-hmm. And there's, we need to move it faster. And so it's kind of, you know, I feel that aside from just going about their ways of doing inward change, they need to fasten the process of collaborating with those that are outside that already kind of have ideas, plans and fixtures in place to really implement or help get it moving forward, right? And so I'm mean, I'm assuming, you know, through your company, this is what part of what y'all are doing, which is really, really great. Yeah, we're trying, we're trying, I keep, all the discussions I have is, yes, we need the long-term strategies, you know, getting in new new PIs, new, uh, even within the pharma companies, you know, building that diversity. But then there also has to be something we do now, because otherwise we're talking about change in 25, 30 years time, and that's not good enough. Um, so it's, it's, so we've, as in Couch, have developed a few services and approaches that I think are, effective really effective um and i i've got some case studies that i'm just about to sign off and be able to launch but you know we we're doing community outreach now in the us we're doing community outreach in brazil we're doing it in western europe who are you know behind you know they think there is no issue in those countries in these um but there's issues everywhere unfortunately equity as a concept it's a concept it's not reality at the moment um so yeah so we're we're doing we train up like site staff on how to spot their own biases before they go and start a study and my idea would be that i know all sites are overburdened and i know they're, they're overworked but if they could just take on a bit more training i do think we can break down some barriers that will help help because cultural competency, cultural awareness training, they're like, they, there's evidence out there they have zero impact on the workplace. So why do we keep doing that? Um, you know, I'm sure you've all done it, I've done it, and, you know, it, it doesn't really help. Um, so we've developed something called the Cultural Safety Programme, which is essentially cultural awareness is me just understanding who you are as people. Uh, cultural competency means that, you know, I can speak to you um, and just say, hi, how are you, um, Ashley, how are you doing? But if I'm safe, I'm like, hey, how are you doing? You know, how are, how are things going with the family? What's, you know, more cultural references? And I'm more confident to speak that. And I think 
that's something that we're we're developing, um, and that could really help with engagement. I think. So this is just an observation. Um, with COVID, is if there's such a mistrust in in communities, uh, I don't think COVID helped that in the least, especially with the information that's coming out now. There are people that were forced to get vaccinated and now they're getting the information on how it may be harmful to them. Yeah. Why would anybody, let alone minority populations, want to participate in research? I agree. And then it almost became a, a grab. Uh, you know, it was in the media. Uh, it's happening with minority groups. So suddenly these, you know, pharma companies did big press releases. You know, they they blacked out their social media. They um, And they were like, yes, and they pivoted their model. But it became you know, almost like, I, you're, you're Asian, you're brown-skinned, I want you in my study, you're black, I want you in my study, and it's just not authentic at the moment, and which, I don't know about you, if someone was to say, I don't know, oh, I want an Indian person, uh, someone from an Indian background in this study, I'd be like, why, why do you want me in this study? So I'd be very sceptical of myself, so again, it's training on communication, um, yeah. That's, that's my, my take. And I completely agree with that, what you just stated. Why on earth do you want a specific patient population? Now, there may be good reason and rationale behind that, and I think there often is, but yeah. I certainly would question that. Absolutely, and I think it comes from how these studies are set up. If it was inclusive by nature, um, you know, and the inclusion and exclusion criteria not being so stringent, um, you know, certain demographics, I'm working on a study where there's 28 daily site visits. Um, me, as a healthy man, I am not going to go to the clinic 28 days in a row. So imagine um, someone who may have more than one job or has childcare, or as you know, that is automatically going to eliminate the underserved population, um, and it's going to be a privilege. Absolutely, have those opportunities. Yeah, it happened to me two weeks ago. We had a patient for a study. She qualified. This is a tough study to get people in to begin with. She qualified. She's referred by the doctor. The doctor told me her only issue. She qualifies for every aspect of the study. It's it's literally the needle in the haystack they're looking for. But she works three jobs, and there's no way she can do an eight-hour visit. And this, the way this study is designed is like multiple eight-hour visits. That's hard enough for the staff, like my coordinator who I'm paying yeah. to be there, right? It's hard enough for them to be there that entire time, never mind the patient. So we couldn't put the patient in. No. And that's exactly what they're looking for. Yeah. 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 We, just, we just need to educate the scientists who are doing, you know, developing these protocols just to go out into the real world, have some conversations I don't just... know, man, because, yeah, we should. But so we have this medical writer who we were working with on an academy, Christine. Mm -hmm. Shout out Christine Spagwinetti. She's amazing. So she works with these people. And, you know, they're, I mean, to, to play devil's advocate, they are spending lots of money. So we can't fault them for trying to squeeze every ounce of data they can out of the study when they make a study. but that's at the expense of eliminating a large majority of patients who would actually qualify because they're real world patients. That's it. Yeah, that's absolutely it. And I think the conversations that are happening right now, when it comes to at protocol design stage, I think are still too tokenistic. 
and I think if they were just to put a little bit more time with not even just patient groups, but just understanding more with more grassroots, what impact is it going to have on, you know, the local communities? I just think buy-in could be done quicker. Um, so what should we do as sites? Because like now that I, that was that study <laughs> I'm explaining, that was the first study that I got. So I was very excited as a site owner to get a study, to get a study. Now that I have like six other ones, I'm regretting taking that study on. And I actually feel guilty because it, by me taking that study on, I'm letting that sponsor know, Hey, it's okay to do a study like this because we'll take it and we'll try. And there's other sites out there. So I mean, at some point, the sites need to also say, hey, we're not doing this study. And we can, though. That's the thing is, I think these protocols are created, right? We have them at the site level. Once we ha- start having these, these issues, we need to go back to the sponsor and be like, hey, this is not working. And this is the reasons why. Is there a new way you can modify, which sometimes they do. They can go in and change some things around. Um, but if we're not speaking up and letting them know, well, then they're going to continue and then still question why recruitment is so hard. But yet, hey, you're the protocol design is hard to recruit for <laughs> exactly um, yeah so sorry and then when you when you consider um you know if these are new pis too new site owners new starting pis you're easily going to offset them you know it, uh, from the experience right and and even worse if they are from rural areas or they're diverse backgrounds with multiple you know bilingual trilingual backgrounds you know you you want to keep those physicians right and so it just, I, like you said, you know, they're not really keeping the different things in mind here. And, um, you know, uh, I guess not to fully plug, but, you know, that's kind of one of the things we do touch on that with um, the Clinical Research University, we, for the new Academy for Physicians, uh, for clinicians. Um, and that kind of goes back to the basis of education, right? Um, Latinos in clinical research, we are heavy on educating the community in clinical research, but also, you know, educating for for work and things like that, because if for those that are trying to come into the industry or that are trying to make a name for themselves or situate themselves within the industry somehow um, through business, they need to know, you know, what they're coming up against, what or not up against, you know, what they're getting themselves into and and how to kind of maneuver through that, right? So Judy and Dan and, and Monica and Chris, uh, Monica's not here today, but, um, you know, except for me, uh, they're all site owners. And so they understand they've been through all the trials and errors of these things and um, in order for us to not just retain employees through CRO and sponsor, but to retain physicians, right, um, that are going to ultimately give you a more diverse population, you need to provide them that education and guidance, right? And so there's not much of that there. And so hopefully, you know, through this academy, we're able to help in that aspect. But yeah, it's just another a gap in the system. <laughs> Yeah. I agree. Yeah, I mean, we talk about engagement. There's an issue there. Um, education. There's an issue there. Awareness as well. You know, people don't have awareness of it. Um, yeah, so many different layers. Different layers, and then you've got history. You've got um, cultural biases as well. You know, like again, um, with the Indian community, it's all about Ayurvedic treatments. You know, they'll go to that first, or homeopathic, before they'll ever go to the doctor. Um, my mum's uh, early 70s, um, you know, cholesterol's high, but she's still putting ghee in her food because she, because she's been told it's, um, you know, Ayurvedic, it's homeopathic, it'll make her better. But her cholesterol is going to keep going up. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's an odd one, absolutely. Yeah. 
Well, if you don't mind asking, um, for your company, is it, ha you know, would you say that, you know, in the environment right now, that it was quite easy for you to kind of get in and make these conversations, or did you still kind of go through barriers to eventually get into the, the table to discuss what needs to be discussed and make changes? Yeah, I think, so I launched Demand Diversity. Uh, we did some research in 2019, and that launched May 2020. So the timing there was was convenient, if that makes sense. Um, we did it for World Clinical Trials Day. In the US, the conversation is a lot easier. Um, I think the US is more advanced. But I'm, I'm having conversations in Europe, um, you know, medical agencies, local agencies, regulators, they don't think there's an issue. They're like, but why? We've always had blockbuster drugs. Why, why do we need to change now? Um, and, you know, during COVID-19, the, you know, the pulse oximeter meters that, you know, were measuring everything on, they didn't work on dark skin. So would that have been eliminated if that was tested on, on diverse populations? Um, I think it would have. So, yeah, it's, the, it's harder outside of the U.S., um, but in the U.S., it's easier. But I still think in the U.S., it's slightly skewed to it's not it's not inclusive of the whole population of the U.S., you know. Um, so I think there's a bit of work still to be done on that. Um, and I think the U.S. still talks in terms of skin color, but there's so many different areas. And, and when we talk about diversity, we're talking about age, gender. You know, we're talking socioeconomic status, immigrant status, and especially in a country like U.S. and U.K., uh, I think they all play a role in um, how we see um, healthcare. Yeah, I mean, hundred percent agree. <laughs> Gosh, I don't know. Um, there's just so much that needs to get done. But you know, like you're saying, it's. Um, I also do think the whole thing about the color. It's. Um, we've had multiple conversations, and a lot of it is. Um, I mean, not to be so specific, but it's just you know, well, we're doing this, this over here. It's like, okay, well, great. That's great that you're making moves and changes in that you know area however when you're dealing with latinos or other backgrounds you're dealing with like you said immigration you're also dealing with um you know patriarchal patriarchal background you're also dealing with you know uh you know conservatism in its own form right and and you know uh living in a rural area and not having sometimes not having a lot of education or financial stability and things like that you know as opposed to maybe another population and so you can't address one population like you do the other one and kind of just, you know, cross over real easily. It's not how it works. That's why, you know, it's important to, if you're going to have a point of change, have a table, sit multiple people within that table from those areas that are of representation and have mm -hmm. the conversation and make, you know, changes, you know, cohesively, I guess you could say. But yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, I 100% agree with what you're saying. If, if we're just more inclusive and I think that's the key word it's not diverse it's about being inclusive and including everyone um yeah we wouldn't need you know uh, like black history month we what right now is um in the US Asian and Pacific Island of months um you know we we should be able to celebrate these things all year round without needing these these um days months yeah yeah I agree with that but don't go saying that too loud. Okay? Uh, 
gonna piss off the wrong people. <laughs> no, that's, yeah, I agree. I mean, that's not my intention, but yeah, I think it's we should we need to get to a place where we don't need it. That's that's right. which exactly. is still a long long way. It's a long way, but I think everything that we're doing in our communities with our organizations, we're gonna make a little change and raise more awareness, and hopefully be able, like for example, what I'm doing in my community, be able to show, hey, this is what I've done and worked and share that with others so they can learn from that. And hopefully, you know, throughout the years, we'll, we'll change this. <laughs> I think the problem is that uh, people are trying to find like uh, scalable solutions. And really, um, yeah. I think the answer is just like Judy's doing it, like one patient mm -hmm. at a time. And, yeah. and like, what we're trying to do is like, we're not even going after the patients right now with LICR. We have enough of a challenge just going after Latinos trying to work in the industry. Right. So, and even that's a challenge, but getting patients to enroll in studies, I really think that's just a very one-on-one -on -one kind of thing, which pharma doesn't want to do because it's not efficient. And, yeah, it has to be. One size doesn't cannot fit all in this one particularly. Um, so I agree with you on that one. Absolutely. But I don't think they're changing their protocols yeah, either. I, I still I think feel like getting harder. Yeah, they're trying to still fit that <laughs> recruitment model and central recruitment campaigns with all sites. And even though it hasn't worked year after year, you know, over all these studies and they still continue to do it. So when is when are we going to see the day when they stop doing that and they actually listen to the sites, you know, work one on one with them with recruitment? Oh, I agree. If they're not <laughs> listening now in uh, 2022, when sites can actually be picky, uh, I don't think they're ever going to listen. I think I, I am starting to see, you're now starting to see some pharma companies who are just ahead. They get it. Um, it's it's not, I mean, in terms of percentage, I'm not going to give it, I don't know the percentage. It's not many, but there are some that are really, really innovative, really willing to go um, that extra, you know, so they're planning early. I think that is what we need because, with three months left of the recruitment window, don't don't expect us to to, right. to graduate. You know, well, three uh, months left. They don't care who's joining, yeah. any color. They just want bodies in there. You know, I, I do agree with what Ash just said right now, because I am working with a sponsor who is all in with recruitment and pretty much literally has told us whatever you need, we'll give you whatever funds you need, we'll give you whatever you want to do, we'll give you if you can recruit. Um, and so that's where we're at with that sponsor. And then there's another few sponsors who have incorporated this whole recruitment, diversity and inclusion campaign into the protocol already before even starting. So they're already thinking ahead. Um, so it's nice to see that now because I have noticed that I think in the past year or two as I do pre-site visits and site selection visits um, that they're actually, I don't have to keep bringing this up. They, they, they're already two steps ahead. <laughs> I'm good. Yeah. And I, hopefully we'll see, you know, we'll see it much more frequently in the next two years, but by 2025, you know, um, the old school protocols will hopefully be the minority uh, rather than most of the protocols. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Be <laughs> I definitely think with, you know, organizations like ours and a bunch of other organizations that are out there right now, you know, really starting to stem out um, along with, you know, your company and, and your organization and others like it, right, um, kind of coming together, highlighting each other as much as possible and really making that space so that there's, you know, um, openness on resources out there so that, you know, there's not this 
discussion of, oh, well, we don't know what to do. It's like, well, there's resources, free resources, you know, um, for you to help and assist. And, you know, that's just, there should be no excuse at that point, right? If there's already things out there that are available to them to, to utilize. And so, you know, we'll continue to do this interview, uh, great uh, like-minded people like you, Ash, and with your awesome background, and I'm sure the many people that, you know, you work with. And so um, just keep, you know, putting it out there and hopefully, you know, at some point making some really big strides with companies and, and seeing, you know, what kind of changes we can help implement and fast track. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Now it's, um, yeah, I think the work you guys are doing, I followed, I've been, I've watched everything you do um, and I'm just yes. really excited that you're doing it. Um, so there's there's us doing demand diversity. There's 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 you guys. Um, there's Danielle. You know there are some really like I would say I don't want to say the word powerful, but I mean like just who are just doing something good for for our industry. And I think you know you guys are definitely uh, you know one of the leaders. So yeah, keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. Thank you for that. Thank we, you. Thank you. Um, there's this thing called DAO, D-A-O, uh, Decentralized Autonomous Organizations. I don't know if you guys, probably Ashley is the one who's <laughs> heard of this, but yeah. it's got me excited because I'm on Twitter and these, these like groups of people essentially like, or hypothetically, it would be like geneticists meet up with LICR, meet up with Black women in clinical research, meet up with like a site like Judy's, maybe a site like mine, scientists a CRO, like a small CRO, and they make through the blockchain, they'll make like the entire business structure of a pharmaceutical company, basically. So mm -hmm. they call the shots for how the study is going to be designed. I mean, if, like, you Let's know, how, how we're complaining. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cool. <laughs> well, it's so early, like, you know, there's only like a handful of them on Twitter and they have like these conversations. I've been trying to get them on the podcast. Um, <laughs> But there's some smart people. They're like geneticists. That's uh, where it's going. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe what needs to change is like just the paradigm has to change from the top down. Because awesome. call me skeptical, but I don't think these pharma companies are changing their protocols anytime soon to no, accommodate but, <laughs> patients. No, but I do have to say, because I'm in the master's program at UCSD and advanced studies in clinical research, and I've noticed that a lot of those um, students in there are doctors, and the, their mindset when it comes to creating protocols or designing protocols, they can do it, they're great, they understand the therapeutic area, but when it comes to the realistic like how that's actually going to work in a real life setting. They don't understand that and they don't really have that training and they're not really getting that training so much in the program. So I've actually like, I've done some presentations here and there for projects where I talk about recruitment and diversity and thinking like what's realistic for the patient. Could they really do these visits? Could they actually come in and do these procedures? And so I think there needs to be more of that, especially if they're going these, through these various training courses that exist, you know, if they're getting trained on research already. And I think that seems to be missing in some of these trainings. Mm. So hopefully we'll see if it, it can improve. Mm. <laughs> Let's see, but Ash, thank you so much for coming on. Everybody go check out Ash's LinkedIn underneath uh, the video. And if you're listening on our podcast, thank you. And check it out in the show notes. Um, and it'd be good to network and do a part two and maybe look at some other 
like practical things that us in the industry can do to increase inclusion. Yeah. Well, thank you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. You too. All right. Thank you.